Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Today, we take a break from normal programming to bring you this special episode of the podcast. Recently, Aspie released the report, National Security Agencies and the Cloud, an urgent capability issue for Australia. The report looked at the need for Australia's national security community to shift to cloud infrastructure. In today's discussion, report authors Michael Shubridge and John Coyne are joined by two of Oracle's Australian experts on cloud, Kirsty Linehan and Nathan Cook. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to uh, an ASPE podcast on the national security community and cloud infrastructure and services. I'm Michael Shubridge. I'm the head of ASPE's Defence Strategy and National Security Program, and I'm joined by John. Kirsty and Nathan. Kirsty and Nathan being from Oracle and John, of course, being a co-author of our recent special report. Uh, so we've got about 20, 25 minutes and we're going to cover some of the, the highlights out of the report, but in a, in a different way. Let me start first with something I know whenever you have a discussion about cloud infrastructure and systems uh, that people want to know, which is so what exactly is this cloud thing that you were speaking about? And Nathan, I know you're immersed in this, uh, but just describe very simply what cloud infrastructure and computing is. Uh, thanks. So I guess the clearest way of uh, summing it up is uh, using the NIST definition. So cloud is effectively an on-demand network access to shared pool of configurable resources. So that can include both networks, servers, storage, applications, and there's some characteristics that make that essential. So on-demand self-service, so the ability to provision computing capabilities without requiring human interaction uh, with the service provider. You've also got broad network access coupled in with that, resource pooling, elasticity, and obviously a measured service. And they're the key aspects that come with cloud. We have a range of different uh, service models that come with that. And what we have is software as a service, and then you've also got platform as a service and infrastructure as a service. So that's a, an overview of cloud from that perspective. Mm. And in, in my simple brain way, I, I think the, the key things there are on-demand uh, configurable computing. So it means instead of having to build uh, a network and structure to meet particular needs, you can reconfigure the cloud infrastructure much more rapidly and uh, almost automatically to meet emerging business needs. And it means from an efficiency point of view, you don't have to build separate computing infrastructure for a whole lot of separate functions. You can shift it from function to function as, as your business requires. Is that kind of the nub of some of it, Nathan? Yes, that's correct. Now, given that the commercial world and all the, the big uh, global technology companies use cloud infrastructure and sell it to others, uh, they're not doing it because it doesn't work. They're doing it because it's far more powerful than the previous way of configuring ICT. Given that that is the case, why is it that security agencies haven't been early adopters of the cloud? What, what do you think it is? What are the obstacles? I think there's a few things that come into play there. Naturally, where we are in the marketplace today versus where we were five years ago, I think culture is another thing. Um, a lot of people believe that cloud is not secure and the different deployment models around flexibility of choice. So what I mean by that is cloud is secure. It's always updated in regards to patch management. Uh, you've got visibility of the environment. You've got customer isolation. Uh, you've got 
embedded security controls, and also in new generation of clouds, you actually have verifiably secure infrastructure. But I think what we have the issue with is the deployment model in the national security sector is quite complicated where when we talk about cloud, a lot of people tune straight into public cloud. It's not in an isolated environment, but that does that's changed today. So in today's environment, there's fl- flexibility and choice. So cloud can be deployed in classified environments. It's about having the conversation with the right strategic vendors, um, and there's many of them that can actually deploy their public cloud in classified environments. So as an example, Oracle takes its public cloud and we actually do offer that as a classified cloud into our national security clients. And there's other as, that as a other cloud system. Vendors. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. But Kirsty, if I could bring you in here, because you know, the, an argument I hear from people is, but look, chief information officers and uh, chief information security officers are the ones that have this in hand. Uh, there's there's no need to uh, to look to anyone else, so they will be the people that you need to talk to about cloud infrastructure. What, what's your thought about that? With your experience in in working into into parliament and at the senior leadership level, why why do you think ministers and agency heads have to lead this? Well, look, I think there's definitely merit in ministers and agency heads providing top down support to assist agencies to move to the cloud a lot quicker, um, and this is primarily because really the benefits of going to cloud are not just about things like financial efficiencies and savings and resources. It's actually that huge uplift and transformation and capability, which is what the business owners, not the ICT areas, stand to benefit from. But I think there are some substantial challenges that need to be overcome in order for ministers and agency heads to play that change champion role. They need to have a really solid understanding around what the benefits are for actually moving to cloud business from a service delivery or policy perspective. They also need to have a really rock solid understanding around basically all the counter arguments that they're going to encounter while championing this cause. Things like what Nathan mentioned earlier, the age old adage of cloud actually not being as secure as on-prem, which we know isn't true, but is something that is often spoken about in agency circles. Mm. And the, the challenge particularly for uh, the ministers is that when it comes to technology issues, uh, they often seek advice from their CIOs um, or data sheets. They really need to be getting this advice from their business leaders or business line areas who need support to be able to be uplifted in understanding the benefits that cloud has to offer. Mm. Well, I must admit, that that was a big motive in us writing the report. And just one of the the big, simple issues that we tried to bring out in it was, all right, you can have uh, fears and anxieties about cloud infrastructure and, and services and systems, but looking at the world of software creation and app development, and ICT provision globally, the world's best technology developers, software developers, app developers are now all writing for the cloud and designing for the cloud. And so if you want to be locked out of the world's best minds around apps and software and systems, don't move to the cloud. Alternatively, if it's important to you to have first world capabilities to give you the decision-making edge over others, you will have to move to the cloud because that is the place that the world's best capability will come from. So that, and that I think is the more, that's the business logic and the capability logic, and it takes it out 
of the CISO and CIO domain and makes it a minister and agency head issue. I, I think that's that's the way it, it seems to me. Uh, but you're right, without that advice and technology advice coming up, it's it's hard for a, a minister or an agency head to, to carry that argument. Yeah. John, what are your thoughts on this? Look, I, I want to go back to the, the issue of the CIO, and I think this is this is the tough one for CIOs. Um, and first off, I mean, they're faced with a very difficult challenge at the best of times. So in many agencies, you know, for starters, you know, upwards in some agencies, 40% of their budgets are going towards maintaining legacy systems. Um, their focus is on keeping the organisation going. Um, secondly is, is that, um, you know, the development of new systems traditionally in their own minds has been a case of, you know, developing new policy initiatives, putting them forward to government, getting them funded and then implementing them. Um, they're implemented over five years and then eventually the cost of keeping them going runs into um, the organisation's budget. Um, so they're not really in that headspace to really to be able to sit there and and look at those bigger pictures, nor are they ready. I guess, Cloud, and the one thing we haven't raised here, and I've had this conversation before with Nathan, which is Cloud is a, you know, it's a recent development. Like you can look at it in different ways and say it has a longer history. But... Seriously, you know, really over the last five or ten years, cloud has really taken off. And so as a result of that, we're talking about sort of paradigm shifts in the way we think, the way we finance, the way we do other business with cloud. So um, I, I'm, from my perspective, I think it's those two issues. Number one is, is that it's a paradigm shift in a way of thinking. Number two, and, and probably um, more to the heart of our report and the way we think is um, in the national security community, is that if you don't have cloud, then you can't do and access some of the world's best software. You can't go and get some amazing product that's been developed by a very smart 25-year-old who's written some amazing piece of um, self-learning algorithm in the same way that agencies who are on the cloud can. Well, my fear about that is if if the National Security Committee stays on the legacy infrastructure, they'll be getting people out of retirement to write software patches for their applications. And uh, while while that might seem like a really cunning double bluff to make you cyber secure because no one would expect you to be running such age systems, it won't give you a first world capability. Now, I want to shift now to, you know, from a minister and agency head point of view, the first thing they're going to say is, well, how do I fund this? And there are a bunch of obstacles in the way the Commonwealth um, government budget system works. And Kirsty, you know quite about a bit about this, I know. So can you tell me, you know, what's, what are some of the obstacles in the, in the financial system, uh, particularly around things like capital budget and operating budget? And what, what's getting in the way of cloud investment there? Yeah, well, there's um, definitely some obstacles financially at the moment uh, for Australia and other countries as well that are worth sort of calling out. We've got some very serious economic pressures due to COVID. And so I think globally, government's appetite for IT spend is going to be quite diminished as a sort of a step into budget repair and economic recovery. Um, but that aside, uh, there are some serious challenges with sort of the way the financial arrangements are structured that make it difficult to move to cloud. So traditionally, you'll have capital expenditure that departments were able to allocate toward kit, if you like, to build things in the IT land. And then they'll also be provided um, some money for operational expenditure for the purchase services for IT. Um, and the cloud capability comes into operational expenditure, which is an ongoing cost that finance knows they need to account for forever and a day. So they can be a little bit hesitant towards making commitments 
increased commitments for operational expenditure because they're very hard to back away from, whereas contrast the capital expenditure is sort of those one-off couple of years of big investments in funding and then it tapers off so pretty much down to nothing. So there's, there's a sort of budget control lever that fi- the Department of Finance have there and you can understand it, can't you? If, if, um, if they have a whole lot of agencies and portfolios sign up to ongoing annual costs, uh, then that's that's kind of a commitment off in, uh, into the infinite future. Whereas if they push things into capital budgets, then they can say, well, not this year, but next year, or flatten the spend a bit, and, and they can phase things. So there's that bigger budget control side. But uh, there's the other one is the fear of the rising cost, isn't there? And this is an interesting thing. Nathan, I know you've got some thoughts about, well, just like you were talking about ease of configuration and the visibility you require as a cloud provider, if you're going to flexibly configure uh, computing for for emerging business needs, you've got to have a whole lot of visibility over the system. You've talked a bit about uh, having to align the financial models with the technological or ecosystem model. What's what's your thought about that, Nathan? Is that a way to think about controlling cost? Well, I think so. I, I guess when you take it back from a, a, a higher policy level, a, a policy directive around expenditure of public funds drives a certain cultural mindset and outcome. So, you and you see that all the time within departments and agencies. Uh, it's a build versus consume uh, model. So, where they may identify that it would be better to actually go and consume a service because they know it's more enterprise scalable. In fact, they don't have the operating expenditure to actually go and consume that service. So they have to use the CapEx model or capital expenditure to go and build that. And I think when you look at over time, you know, the market dynamics change as well. But with that, we need to be able to adapt with those changes. And that adaptation requires us to look at where that the new market is and are our financial models in line with where the market is? Because at the moment, they're not. So where we look at cloud technology right now, it's an operational expenditure. It gives you flexibility within a department to have visibility between your lines of business and who's spending what and consuming what resources so you can actually better budget and plan ahead and be forewarned about an increase potentially. But you can also lock in that actual OPEX uh, cost to a line of business so that you can always get alerts around when they're hitting a certain threshold um, so that they can monitor that and either tailor down or you can reallocate from other lines of business, operational costs uh, into that area. And in particular, COVID is a perfect example of that. So the ability, for instance, if cloud was being consumed, you can have visibility across your entire department and the impact it's happening, happening on your individual work environments, which work environment actually needs more resources, whether it be human capital, based on an increase in demand, uh, which is visible within the cloud environments. And at the moment, you're not seeing that within the legacy infrastructure where you also have shadow IT and it's also not as secure as well. So I think there's some yeah. big things at the moment. Yeah, and no, I suppose with uh, cloud infrastructure and services, you get more visibility of the system and more ability to control the costs within the system and attribute them to particular business areas. So it can also be a financial tool uh, for agencies as well. Um, that's that's interesting. But I suppose this now brings us uh, to the to the last chunk of the discussion, which is related to cost control as well as capability and functionality. Because I've heard 
you know, a bunch of people say, look, the main thing is to choose one big trusted uh, vendor and you buy into their ecosystem and you've got one throat to choke. You control the costs by having that trusted provider and having visibility of what they're doing. Um, and that that's the right approach. So the, the main question for Australia is which uh, trusted vendor to, to choose. But uh, to me, I, I don't see that as a really great cost control model because I think economics and human nature tells us monopoly providers get great leverage to uh, get funding out of whoever they're the monopoly provider to. But I also think it gets into the what's the right conceptual approach to the cloud for Australia and particularly for our national security community. We canvassed this a bit in the report and we deliberately didn't come out with this one true path. Uh, but you know, this, I'll just uh, toss this out to, to, uh, to all three of you, probably Kirsty, uh, you first, about uh, public clouds where it's shared with other entities, government or non-government. Non I think that just doesn't make sense for the national security community. But a community cloud for the national security community that has maybe private clouds that, that uh, operate into it where particular agencies just don't have enough trust in that that broader national security cloud to me that's got a whole lot of virtues because you end up with a multi-vendor solution and you end up with a small number of trusted vendors uh, a slightly larger number of service providers and the ability to bring in thousands of different application providers you know the the smart 23 year olds and 25 year olds that john was talking about but why why isn't that big one monopoly provider such a great thing because it lets you adopt the technology at scale and it gets you ahead of the capability curve. Well, Michael, I might actually hand this one over to Nathan because I was just yep. talking to him about this very issue uh, just before we got onto the cast and I know he's got some pretty insightful things to say on this Right, one. Nathan. Um, well, I think a single cloud solution is not really capable of meeting the diversity of public administration needs today and even in the future. So while at first glance it facilitates the integration of several tasks within the same platform, it actually forces the administration to adapt the architecture of its IT infrastructure to a single supplier, which obviously causes a lock-in effect or a monopoly. On the contrary, when we think about multi-cloud, it has multiple advantages. So when we look at it from an economic perspective, we have you know several suppliers are competing. There's no monopoly situation pushing prices up and the purchase will therefore be made at the right price. From a technological aspect, you know, administrations benefit from a varied offer that allows them to choose the best solutions that suit to their needs and mission requirements and to benefit from the most recent technolo technologies throughout the contract. And that also provides flexibility and choice and the ability to innovate at the, at the speed of the market as well. And I think fundamentally when we look at it from a security perspective, you know, a hybrid multi-cloud strategy is actually more secure than a single vendor strategy. Um, the level of security can be adapted to the different types of data stored, but also to increase the overall level of security. So with a multi-cloud solution or hybrid, if one system is compromised by a cyber attack, the other clouds are not affected and you've got that flexibility um, and resiliency within that ecosystem. To well, actually, to that, that is a pretty compelling argument at, at a minister and agency head level because That's right. you know, we've seen major intelligence compromises. Think about the Snowden mm. compromises. You know, The way I think about this is one big provider and one big solution is a bit like needle sharing. And the problem with needle sharing uh, for drug users is 
they all end up catching the same disease at the same time. Uh, so that's that is a bad, bad thing. From a from a simple risk point of view, avoiding that needle sharing and and having a multi vendor approach, you know, it's it's a way of where there's a vulnerability. It's only in a part of your enterprise. It doesn't infect the whole of your enterprise. So that's the way. I think about it at that sort of minister and, and agency head level. You know, that's interesting. John, what's what's your thought about this? Because I know uh, putting the report together, there was a, a lot of thinking, a lot of discussion about this, and that there is some simple attraction, isn't there, to saying, I'm in a hurry. I, I want this one big provider to solve my problems. Look, I, I'm with you in terms of um, shedding that risk, and I think there's a few caveats I want to add to it as well. So uh, the, the wonderful thing about cloud, and it was explained to me during the research process, is that um, if, if you're going to use cloud, um, it's not an activity in outsourcing um, your risk. So you're really taking, although they're still a vendor, your, your vendor is also a technology partner. Um, they have an equal role in security as you do. Uh, admittedly, that's controlled by the contractual relationship. So, you know, from that perspective, it requires some changes. And I think having a, a trusted few allows you to be able to work in that sort of still in that technology partnership without locking yourself completely off uh, or taking on so many people as not to be able to have that relationship. And the other thing is, is that um, and we, we sort of what we're not precluding here. And you remember, you and I went to great pains to discuss this, Michael, when we were writing a report, which is. Having this sort of multi-vendor approach doesn't mean that you're um you doesn't mean you're giving away your ability to use um the government's purchasing power. So you can still use all of the purchasing power of at a whole of government level or a subunit of that. So a whole of intelligence community level, you can still use your purchasing power collectively to a small number of vendors. And I think that's the that's the other attractive in terms of the the accounting side of the house that's attractive to me. On on top of that, um. You know, it's that same thing which Nathan said, and we keep on really hitting the mark on here. This is also about capability issues. It's not about saving money. Um, it's um, you know, this is this is about a capability issue. And by having a trusted small number of vendors, it gives us a wider access to um, more service providers, and it gives us even more wider access to those amazing people out there who are working. You know, as I've seen firsthand in their mother and father's basement in North America, writing code. Um, and I think that's where um, that benefit comes from, that, that operational benefit. Mm. So for me, that's where my thinking's at anyway. Well, look, uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I, I think that's not a bad uh, note to wrap it up on. Um, I think a, a big thing that's come out of this discussion for me is um, when you look at the, the time right now, and because you mentioned the enormous pressures from COVID-19, both in collapsing government revenue, but also in um, pressure on stimulus spending. Does that mean this is not the right time to invest in a national security or national intelligence cloud? Well, I think the answer is no, because um, not moving to cloud infrastructure and systems uh, will just mean that those legacy systems start going up that bathtub of cost. You know, they're going to get more and more costly to maintain and sustain. But worse than that, their functionality is going to become less and less leading edge. And that's I think that is the driving issue uh, from my point of view. This is about capability. Uh, if Australia wants to have world-class intelligence agencies and a world-class national security community, it needs the power of cloud infrastructure, cloud services, and the myriad applications that you can bring into that ecosystem. Uh, but I think what we've brought out today 
is that really pragmatic, practical connection between the finance models and the technology and ecosystem of the cloud. And I, I think that's something that, that agency leaders and ministers really can get their minds around and shift that thinking to say, actually, the flexibility of the cloud also helps me control some of those costs. So I want to thank each of you for, for uh, joining me in this podcast. And I look forward to further conversations around this because I think this is a, a driving and defining issue uh, for Australia right now. Thanks very much, Kirsty. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, John. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and a special thanks to Kirsty and Nathan for joining us this episode. If you have any thoughts on what's been discussed here today, you can always tweet us at ASCII underscore org. We will be back shortly with more regular programming.